she said, Dear, come from a land down under Where women glow and men thunder Can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? Yeah You better run, you better take cover Yeah You better run, you better take cover Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Sidearm Nation podcast, a unique baseball podcast. Today, we have former Great Britain national team manager, Stefan Repaglia. Thanks for coming on, Stefan. First things first, would you be able to talk to us a little bit about kind of what baseball looked like for you growing up? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in in a suburb of New York City, Rye, New York, and my dad had played high school baseball and, and loved the game, and he had me out playing um, a version of stickball from about age five, playing against the the back wall of a YMCA, and and my first couple of years before I joined Little League were just me and my dad playing catch, um, me throwing pop ups to myself out in the street, um, me and my dad playing stickball against the back wall of the local YMCA, and and then when I hit seven and I was old enough for Little League uh, back in the day. Uh, it started a little older, which as an aside, I think is actually a good thing. Um, I, you know, I grew up playing little league baseball, T-ball all the way up through age 12 and, and then high school in Babe Ruth league and, um, college and professional and independent and international. I mean, that it was just a, it was a nonstop progression. And I guess you mentioned college there, Stefan, could you talk to us a little bit about kind of your college career? I played four years at Amherst College, which is a small Division three liberal arts school in Massachusetts, and I loved every minute of it. Um, you know, I've, I've had a chance, as you know, Jeff, like you, I've played in a lot of different places and a lot of different levels, and, and, I, and I've enjoyed every, every single experience I've had in baseball. But for me, there was nothing like college baseball. Uh, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but one of the one of the reasons is you, you're playing four years, and you're living with guys who are your friends. Um, so, you, you know, you're not worried about whether you're going to get cut the next day, like you are in pro ball. You're you're just trying to win games with your teammates, who are also your buddies and you're also your roommates and the guys that you see all the time. And and we had a great coach and we had a great program. Um, I I had the good fortune of having a class ahead of me one year ahead of me. I graduated in 92, uh, but the class of 91 was an outstanding class. So right when I came into Amherst, we were already a very good team and um, we kind of rode on their, their coattails. So my first three seasons at Amherst, we were very good at that time. Amherst didn't allow its teams to compete in the NCAA tournament, but we were an NCAA tournament caliber team and, um, and Neil Huntington, the former GM of the Pirates, was in that 91 class. He was an outstanding player, along with a lot of other really good guys. And my senior year, we were just okay um, because we lost that group, but we were still good enough. We beat UMass at a D1 that year in my last year, and we were still over 500. So it was really just a great four-year experience at Amherst. And then moving forward, Stefan, you signed with the Astros after? Yeah, I was a non-drafted free agent. Um, I'd, I'd heard you scouts during 
the latter part of the season that they were interested in me. Um, I, you know, I was coming out of a division three as a, as a 22 year old, I wasn't exactly a hot commodity, um, <laughs> but I was throwing, um, I was throwing around 91 and throwing a lot of strikes and about, um, I guess a day before the draft that year, the Jim Pransky and Astro scout called me up and said, Hey, Stefan, I'm Jim Pransky. I work for the Astros. Um, if you do not get drafted, I'm going to call you right after the draft and I'm going to offer you a contract. We're going to offer you $2,500 and, and there's no negotiating. You either can say yes and, and, and we'll sign you or you can say no and we'll move on to the next guy. <laughs> so, so I was, I was thrilled, right? I didn't, I didn't expect to do better than that. And I did not get drafted. And Jim called me like he said he would right after the draft. And I signed for $2,500 and a baseball glove. And it was, you know, about the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> you know, and then Stefan, you kind of moved on after the Astros and played over in Europe, correct? Yeah. So I, I, I was an organizational player, as, as they used to call him, you know, a guy who gets signed to basically fill the roster for the prospects. And sometimes organizational guys can make it. Um, but in 1993, my first spring training after my, my summer season, my short season with the Astros, I got released and I called my college coach, Bill Thurston, again, a great coach who'd had, and, and this is a time where this would have been really unusual, Jeff. He'd had substantial experience in European baseball. Um, he'd spent a lot of time in Holland, but he'd also been in places like Romania, which even today don't really have baseball. Uh, and, and I knew that. And, and I had done a semester, my fall semester, my junior year, I'd gone to Europe. I was in, in Vienna, Austria, and I really liked Europe and my mom. So I called Coach Thurston and I said, hey, Coach, I, I just got released by the Astros. Could you get me a job in Europe? And not a week later was I on the roster of, of Neptunus, which, as you know, is probably the, the most historic baseball club in, in Europe, certainly in, in Holland. And I played the 93 season for Neptunus and we won the Dutch title. I also <laughs> missed the ER and I missed the ERA title, but with a wild pitch, strike three, run scored from third base where I would have won the ERA title that year, too. <laughs> Yeah, honk ball, hey. <laughs> honk ball, honk ball, yeah. And, and you know, it's Jeff, it's nice because um, I've gone back to Holland several times over the years for, for baseball things. And, and, and these are people that I spent just a few months with in 1993. And, and it's nice to, to go back and see them and still have a really nice connection over there. And then afterwards, Stefan, you went back and played indie ball? Right. So actually about... There was a, I only played the one season in Holland and I came back and I was working as a, a substitute teacher in my old school district and, and started also substitute teaching at a private school in my town and um, really transitioning temporarily, at least into being a teacher. I ultimately went to law school, but I spent a year just playing baseball locally, summer, uh, a good summer team that, that actually I played for on and off for almost 30 years, the Pella Mets. And while I was playing for that team, I got a phone call from Charlie Sullivan, who you know, Jeff, and yeah. um, called me out of the blue. And he said, you know, my dad has bought the franchise for the Albany Diamond Dogs, which 
um, was one of the inaugural teams in the Northeast League, as it was known then. And that league started um, in 1995. So after a year of playing locally, I signed with the Diamond Dogs and I ended up playing parts of three seasons in Albany. They were they were short summer seasons. So I was working um, as a teacher in a private school during the school year. And then I was playing professional independent baseball in the summer. And it was it was really a great gig for a few years. And, and that was a that was a pretty high level of baseball it was actually higher than even my my short stint and short A. And, and it was a little better than the Dutch League because. At that time, it was the only that in the Northern League were the only independent leagues in the country. And we had a lot of ex-pro guys, uh, ex-major league guys in that league. Yeah, it's definitely a ro- bit of a revolving door in indie ball. It can be. Is that something? Did you notice that, Stefan? I noticed it more when I managed an independent team in 1998, the, the first year after I stopped playing with the Diamond Dogs. When we when I was with the Diamond Dogs. We didn't have a lot of turnover. I mean, from year to year we did, but within the season, our rosters were pretty static. Gotcha. Uh, but when I managed the Johnstown Johnnies, not not because I wanted to turn our roster over, but that was a that was a team in the Frontier League that had an age limit, and we had a lot of young guys who were who were just coming in and out of that league all the time. I feel like we we had to turn over at least fifty percent of our roster in that short season in '98. And I guess, Stefan, could you describe your pitching style? Uh, well, it's really evolved. So, and and <laughs> and I I refer to it in the present tense. Although I'm 51 years old, and I haven't, and now I haven't pitched in two years. Um, but as a college pitcher, when I was first reaching sort of maturity as a pitcher, if you can put it that way, I was uh, a real sinker slider guy you know, three quarter arm slot, always a strike thrower, but, um, you know, one of what I would describe as, as a lot of a dime a dozen kind of pitcher, which is probably why I was a non-drafted free agent. Um, maybe a little better control than the, than the average pitcher, um, and throwing a little harder than the average pitcher, but not, not hard enough to stand out really. And not hard and, and, and not, um, uh, my breaking stuff wasn't good enough to really put me on the map. But when I went to Holland at age 23, unfortunately, this is after I got released by the Astros, I started experimenting with dropping down. And um, over the course of several years, I did that more and more and more. And I, at that point, still had a healthy shoulder. So I went from being, you know, call it a 90 mile an hour, three quarter arm slot guy to being about close to 90 mile an hour. Um, sidearm, true sidearm delivery slot. And it made me much more effective. I've got, I I think I peaked as a pitcher probably around age 25 or 26 before I hurt my shoulder for the first time. And in the 95 season in in Albany, um, and by the way, my manager that year was Doc Edwards, the former big league manager. I was 4-0 with the 1.01 ERA as a setup man. And I was throwing about 90, 95% of my pitches to right-handers were sidearm and about 90 to 95% of my pitches to left-handers were back up at my three-quarter slot because I'm a righty. So I felt like I had a real advantage going arm side sidearm and, and then going back up um, to pitch to lefties, which 
even today, I don't think many guys do. No, and it's definitely, I mean, just mixing it up like that, it can be very effective. I mean, it's it's something I was talking to my buddy. I, I kind of wish I would have dropped down just the odd time to a lefty in college, but it never even crossed my mind until pro ball. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had the same problem, Jeff. I just, I wish I had done it a year or two sooner. And I think the trajectory in my career might've been different. Um, but I'm a big believer in that changing of arm slots too. And I know you're, I know, uh, so I love the idea of sidearm nation and I know it's about being a sidearm pitcher, but I think if you can, if you can, and not many guys have, have ever attempted to do this at the top level, I think El Duque, you know, Orlando Hernandez used to do this a bit. Yes. But if, and, and, and even David Cohn a little bit, but if you go up top, um, especially to opposite, you know, the opposite side of the plate to the, the righty to lefty, lefty to a righty and stay sidearm to mostly to, to your arm side guy. I mean, what an advantage that is. If you can do both and throw strikes to both, what an advantage. Yeah. That's something I've kind of noticed. Like it seems like a lot of Cuban pitchers do that. Yeah, well, you know, they're just maybe maybe it's because they came up in a baseball culture where experimenting like that, and I'm I'm just speculating, Jeff, but where experimenting like that was was acceptable. And sure. over here, you know, over here, maybe in you know, and, and I can't speak as much for Canada, but in the U.S., it, it's not something. Even though there's a lot of sidearm today, you never really talk about, you never really hear about guys um, going up and down, right? Staying up top and dropping. Maybe it's just. It's just our baseball culture is a little le- a little more rigid still. Yeah, and definitely something that seems to be like it'll always obviously be velo, and I know it's part of the game, but um, just like you mentioned, just even showing that once in a while can it can change things for a lot of guys. Absolutely, and and I think uh, my my prediction will be for what it's worth. Over time, you'll see more and more of it. You'll see more guys changing arm angles. I, I don't think it's a great idea for a young pitcher. You know, young pitchers just got to figure out how to pitch first and and get comfortable. But once somebody has kind of an idea and really understands how their body works, um, that changing of arm angles can be huge. Yeah, it's something uh, even just with one of our University of Calgary pitchers, kind of same thing like you mentioned, kind of just didn't get him to drop down 100%, but it was kind of turned out to be maybe 50% of the time. And and like we talked about it, it definitely kind of changed his career a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exciting. I mean, we had a guy when I was a pitching coach at Iona College um, who, his name's John Barone, who was an outfielder. And I saw him flipping a ball in the winter indoors, just fooling around, flipping at sidearm. And I, and I, my eyes lit up. I was like, Oh man, this guy's got a pitch sidearm. <laughs> and, and he, and he did, and he became um, a top 20 division one ERA guy, his um, senior year. And he didn't even pitch until the end of his sophomore year at all. Cause he, he's, he was a very good athlete and he was a college outfielder, but that's a guy who, you know, who just, who was able to, to prolong his career and do more interesting things. He ended up playing independent ball because of the ability to throw from the side. And Stefan, would you have any mechanical tips about throwing from there? I had a feeling you were going to ask me that question. And, <laughs> um, and I wanted to have a really good answer. I really did. But, but I, I would say, I don't want, first of all, I don't, I really don't like to give, um, uh, mechanical advice, unless I think it can work. Uh, I don't want to just say it just to say, it, but, but one thing that I think, um, 
makes sense for a sidearm pitcher, and Jeff, I'd love to hear your input on this. Is I think you after you come to us uh, after you come to your post position, you know, after you've achieved some balance, which doesn't have to be a hesitation. I'm not getting. I'm not saying it does, but once you've reached that point, you deliver. You you kind of have to tilt, and if you don't tilt forward, um, I feel like your your shoulders are going to be really upright, but your elbow is going to be low, and and that just seems like a, a recipe for an arm injury. So the idea, another way to put it is. Try to keep your shoulders in a in the same pat in the same line as your throwing elbow. You don't want your elbow to be dropping really low below the the line of your shoulders. Gotcha. Yeah, and and that's something I've noticed too. I know a lot of guys they're almost bent over way too early or as they come set. Um, I almost kind of like guys to almost kind of ride that natural slope of the mound, but kind of like you were talking about, like almost with their shoulders as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously hard to talk about easier, easier to visualize, easier to see it. Yes. Uh, um, but a lo- I also believe, and this is an easy, sort of an easy uh, escape route from this part of the conversation, but I think some guys can just throw sidearm. And some guys can't like some guys try to throw a sidearm and it looks like they're going to hurt themselves and other guys do it. And it looks beautiful. <laughs> no, it's definitely true. Even just at some of the, the, the camps that I've run, like there's definitely guys that it just, it just looks a little more natural. Some of them just can look a little more forced, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Forced is a good way to put it. And I guess Stefan, like what would be your favorite part about pitching from the lower arm slot? Well, I love the sense of discomfort it gives to the right-handed batter. Um, I, I feel like if you're effective um, from the lower arm slot, the the guys that are on your side of the plate can't get comfortable in the box. And I love throwing what I call the frisbee curve. I know people call it a slider; they call it different things. But the way I threw it, it was a curveball, but it was it was moving side to side because of my arm slot. Right? If I was throwing the same pitch from up top, it would be you know a 11 to seven or a 12 to six curve, but with that, or 11 to five or 12 to six with that lower arm slot, it was like almost a sideways curveball. So I call it a Frisbee curve. I love throwing that pitch. Uh, <laughs> it's it, a fun pitch. Know, I, yeah. Well, if a guy, does, if a guy doesn't know it's coming, it's really hard to get comfortable swinging at that pitch. So <laughs> Yeah, definitely against like the same side hitter, you can get away with a lot more. Uh, I definitely found like if my slider was working against a righty, I could still throw it, but I definitely had to be careful because it was going right into their bat path. Whereas a lefty lefty, you could get away with a lot more. (laughs) Well, you know, that's exactly Jeff. That's exactly why I tended even even when I really got comfortable throwing sidearm and I threw it a lot, I tended to stay up top against lefties because I did not feel like I could throw that breaking ball in a way that um, was going to make the left-handed hitter have trouble hitting it. Um, You know, they can see it the whole way, right? It's, it's, they can see it the whole way and it's coming right at them. So unless you locate that perfectly, it's just, there's a big margin for error in other words. So I, if I was going to stay sidearm to a lefty, I would stay sidearm and try to run two seamers away. Um, I, I never got comfortable throwing a sidearm changeup. That was just a, a problem that I had. So again, because I, I struggled to throw 
the changeup, and I didn't feel really comfortable with the breaking ball. The only pitch I could really throw to a lefty sidearm was was a fastball, and you can't do that all day long. So that's why I, that's why I tended to stay up top against the lefties. And then, Stefan, you touched on a little bit earlier. I mean, you became a manager in the Frontier League. How was that transition for you? That was a that was a, a tough transition, um, mostly because I still really wanted to be playing, and. <laughs> The guys that I was coaching, I was 28 and the age limit was 26 or 27. And my, my players ranged from like 22 to 26. And, um, it was hard to separate the, the desire to play from the manager role that first year. Also, I had never, I had coached, uh, I think a year of high school at that point, but I'd never coached, um, uh, at that level, at that age level. And, it was, it was a tough year. While I had a really good experience, like I said earlier, I've never had an experience in baseball that I didn't enjoy. We were, I, I don't know, 34 and 43 or something like that. And it was the least successful season of my, of my coaching career from a wins and losses perspective. Um, like I said earlier, there was a lot of roster turnover and that that's not great either because one of the great things about coaching is, is the relationships you build with, with your players. And that roster was turning over so much. There was not as much relationship building as I would have liked. So I don't think it was my, well, I know it wasn't my best year as a coach, but it was a great learning experience. And then kind of afterwards, Stefan, you went over and played in Germany, correct? Yeah. So that was, that was really fun. Now, um, in that three-year period between really the Frontier League and Germany, I was in law school and I was coaching. I was a pitching coach at Iona College during that period. So I I was growing and, and maturing, but I was also learning more about being a coach. And I went to Germany at 31, um, basically between in the gap between when I was finishing law school and starting my first job as a lawyer. And I was player manager for a team in, in Tübingen, which is the German town that I was born in. It's a, it's a pretty small university town in Southern Germany. It's really beautiful and historic. And, and as you know, in Europe, um, all sports are on a club system. And this was yes. a baseball and softball club in, in Tübingen. And, and they had a team that just happened to be in the small town at the top level, the Bundesliga level of German baseball. And it's kind of a long story how I ended up with the team. Um, I had reached out to them when I saw that there was a team in that town that that was at that level. And I went over there with my wife and my then two-year-old, and we just had the time of our lives for six months. I was player manager. Um, I, I loved the guys on the team. We we overachieved in the first year that that they were using wood bats over there, and, and we competed really well against some of the giants of, of German baseball, like Regensburg, as you would know, Jeff. And um, we had a very good season and it was a, it was a wonderful life experience. And my wife and I look back on that very fondly all the time. Now, 20 years later. With being born in Germany, Stefan, did you ever represent Germany or was that ever in the works or? Well, it was, First of all, I never represented Germany. I don't have a German passport, or at least not yet. 
um, the German citizenship laws are different from U.S. So just being born there didn't automatically entitle me to a uh, a passport, and and I've never had one. But when I did play there that season, uh, Fred Van Gulik, who was then the German national team coach, and was was involved in the in the Bundesliga, did say to me that, and, and he and he actually provided me with a letter. Um, for a Spitzensport exception, it basically would have allowed me to obtain my German citizenship within three years and then play for the German national team. But the catch is I would have had to live there during that period of time. And, and I wasn't wow. able to do that. I had to come back home and, and earn some money <laughs> and work at my day jobs. Gotcha. So it never happened. <laughs> And then I guess moving forward, Stefan, kind of where we met, uh, you ended up coaching the Great Britain national team. Could you talk to us a little bit about that experience for you? Uh, that was that was really the thrill of my coaching life. Um, I, I, Jeff, I still think about that program. Uh, I, I won't say daily, but weekly. As you know, the European Championships just ended about a week or two ago, and and I followed Great Britain closely throughout that event, as I have for the last 10 years since I gave up that position. Um, but one of the reasons why I regret not having been a part of the German national team as a player is because I experienced what it was like to be part of a national team as a coach and managing you and your teammates during that period of time, as, as we were growing the program uh, from 2005 through well, really 2009 was the last competition that I was part of was, was so rewarding because you guys wearing great Britain on your, on your Jersey cared so much about what you were doing and, and wanted to represent great Britain in the best way you could that every minute I spent in that role. And with that group of guys, whether it was in practice or, on a bus or a train or on the ball field um, competing was, was a special minute for me. And I appreciated it even then when I was in the middle of it. Um, I tried to really be in the moment. Um, I, I still like dream, practically dream about the, um, the 2007 euros in Barcelona and, and all the, the stuff that went along with us winning the silver that year. Um, but now, 10 years later, it's still something I'm really proud of, but also something I'm really grateful to have been part of. Um, I, I'll always owe a huge debt of gratitude to Tom Gillespie, who, who um, connected me with that position, the coaches that I did that with, uh, the Charlie Sullivan and Brian Cleary and Alan Dean and Lance Painter, uh, Matt Rush, of course, Alan Smith, who was our great GM for all those years, and, and all of you guys, Jeff. I mean, I loved I love the players on that team then, and I still love you guys now. Yeah, that was pretty special to play in that game to go to the Olympics. Yeah, now it's too bad that game didn't go our way, Jeff, but um, the, rest <laughs> of that, the rest of that turn was awesome. And, and I'll give you a plug here. One of the most memorable aspects of that entire 2007 Euros for me is when um, I had to pull our starter in the second inning against Sweden and brought you in, in in a game that we we absolutely had to win, but we'd started off badly. And you just shut him down for, I think, like six and two-thirds innings um, and gave us a chance to climb back in that game and let guys like, you know, Mike Nickius and Brent Ust and 
Ian Young, who had unbelievable offensive performances in that Euros, uh, get us over the top. So your role in that silver medal um, was invaluable. And, and that, uh, that appearance by you in that game was, was one of the most memorable um, pitching outings that I, that I ever had a chance to watch. Well, it was definitely fun that Sweden had what, like eight out of nine lefties. <laughs> yeah, well, well, there, there, that was that was a factor in you getting in the game there for sure. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, and honestly, like just a great group of guys. Always enjoyed the the different guys from all over and meeting, you know, of all the different European championships, and just to kind of see where we went from two thousand one to two thousand seven. It was pretty special. Yeah, yeah. And then you mentioned, we kind of talked a little bit earlier, um, you've kind of created uh, old world baseball, Stefan. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, my day job for now almost 20 years has been as a real estate lawyer. Um, but when I left the Great Britain baseball job 10 years ago, I wasn't ready to completely step away from baseball. And two things that that I really love doing um, are traveling within Europe and, and playing and coaching baseball. So my vision was that in this era where uh, travel sports have become such a huge thing and, and kids and their families are forced in the summers to really choose between doing interesting family and cultural stuff and, and playing their sport, I thought maybe there was a way to combine those. So old world baseball has been um, for this, you know, until COVID and, and hopefully again, starting up next summer, an organization where we provide trips to compete at a high level with great coaching in Europe for a couple of weeks for kids who are on their way to play college baseball. So these kids who would normally be playing travel the whole summer, give up a week or week and a half, two weeks, and they come play with us in Europe and, and we provide them with great competition and a great travel experience. And it's been really fun for me. Um, but the feedback that we've gotten from what are now more than 200 alumni of our program has also been really great. And um, Tom Gillespie, my partner in that, and I hope to keep evolving old world baseball to give more people the opportunity to play baseball in Europe as we go forward. And then, Stefan, would you have any advice for anyone maybe out of college debating on indie ball or going to Europe? Yeah, that's actually a question that that people have asked me on a few occasions. I think um, some of that depends on uh, the player's level of ability, obviously. Um, and some of it depends on the player's ability to get a dual passport. Um, yes. But all things, and, and, and I, I guess I should explain that latter part of it, because European baseball limits the amount, and I'm really talking about the top levels of European baseball right now, um, European baseball limits the amount of foreign players that each team can have on its roster. The spots for those foreign players usually go to pretty high level um, guys in the U.S., guys who for the most part have played at some level of professional baseball it is possible to go over there with only a college background but it's tough but if a player can access a european passport or already has one um, for family really reasons 
then there are numerous opportunities within European baseball. So for that kid, um, that 21 or 22 year old European baseball is a really tremendous option for, for the other kid who's trying to choose between independent baseball and European baseball. Um, I guess it really just depends on what you want. If you're hoping to get into a major league organization and, and you're looking at, at independent or European baseball as a stepping stone, well, you've got to play independent baseball because the, the amount of guys who've gone from U.S. college baseball to European baseball to a major league organization, you could probably count on one hand or less. Um, where, where if you want, if you come out of an, if you go into an independent league and you perform well, getting into a major league organization is a, is a more realistic, not highly realistic, but more realistic route. Um, but if you want a life experience and you want to play decent baseball, um, I'd say go to Europe. Yeah. And I guess the other thing too, is maybe just for someone that's played a couple years of indie ball, or maybe just got released from affiliated ball. I mean, it can definitely, it, it probably depends on what stage you're at in your career, but you know, experience your European baseball, it is pretty special. Yeah. So for that guy, absolutely. The one who's already played independent ball or played an organization, yes. that player is going to have the types of opportunities that are only available to, you know, the best, the better U.S. players without the dual passport. Um, you and I both know a lot of guys who've done that, Jeff, and, and it, it, it would be hard to find a player who went from some level of U.S. professional baseball to Europe and and regretted it. Uh, I mean, almost everyone I've ever encountered from the U S or Canada that's gone to play baseball in Europe regards it as one of the best things they've ever done in their life. It's just a wonderful life experience. Yeah. And the only negative I've heard is maybe just from like a, from a hitting standpoint is just maybe sometimes it can be a little bit different that adjustment, but, but off the field and traveling Europe, I've never heard anyone complain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And Stefan, I just wanted to ask you too, like, you know, it's something here in, in, you know, where I'm at, I think a lot of kids kind of get that div one mentality stuck in their head being, you know, a former division three player. Could you kind of give us your thoughts on that? And maybe just some expertise, like you don't have to play div one to move on. Right. I'm really glad you asked me that question. I just had a conversation about this the other day with another friend of mine who's involved in baseball, a guy named Joe Espinoza. Um, I think it's a really big mistake for high school players to get caught up on that distinction in baseball. Um, baseball is so different from football or basketball where, where the gap between division one and division three is enormous. Uh, I'm not saying that division one isn't better than division three by and large in baseball. It is, but the gap is, is much, much, much smaller. I gave an example very early, or I, I think it was it was during this conversation, Jeff, or it might have even been before when we were chatting. When I was a senior at at Amherst, we you know we played the University of Massachusetts, which is a A10 Division One program. We played them once a year because they were in our town, and we were two and two against them, and we were a good D3, and they were probably a mid level D1 at that point. But that would not happen in basketball or football. So, very true. Very true. You know, just, just anecdotally, the gap isn't that big. So if it's about trying to play at the highest level, I understand that. Um, but going to a weak Division One program, 
you're not necessarily going to be playing better baseball than you are at a good division three program. I, I think that the top division threes are as good as the lower level division ones. That's one thing. And, and then what, why are you doing it? Are you doing it for the scholarship? Well, you, you know, there's not a lot of scholarship money for baseball in college. And most kids who go to play division one get very small scholarships. And a lot of the good division three programs have tremendous financial aid. So you might be spending more money to get your scholarship at a, <laughs> at a weak division one than if you chose a great division three program. That's another thing. So, you know, then what does it come down to, to tell your girlfriend that you're a division one athlete? I mean, give me a break, <laughs> go to division three and play good baseball, get a great education. And by the way, be a real student athlete. So if you're, if you're good enough to be a top level division one player, by all means, that's what you should do. But if you're a borderline division one player and you have a chance to go to a great academic D3 school, well, make the decision for the right reasons. Yeah. And I think also too, you have to kind of see where, you know, are you just going to be like a bottom end bullpen guy, maybe in div one, or maybe have an opportunity to start at a div two or div three, right? A hundred percent. I should have said that too, Jeff. I completely agree. I mean, look, maybe some guys are just happy to be there. They just want the uniform and fine. But if you want to be a player and, and you, you know, you're going to be one of 40 guys and you're a walk-on on a division one, well, you know, is that really a better route than, than competing to be in the lineup every day for a good division three program? I mean, I, I would choose, I did choose and I, and, and I had that opportunity, by the way, I chose a division three then, and I would choose it again now. Yeah. I ended up going to a div two Northern Kentucky university. I guess they're div one now, but it was one of those things. Like I actually got a better offer and I was going to be able to kind of be the guy right away. Whereas some of the div ones I was talking to out of Juco, it just seemed like I was probably going to be maybe a, a pen guy. So that's kind of why I chose to go div two. Yep. Yep. And and by the way, I don't want to bad mouth division one baseball. I coached the division one and, and there are great programs in division one. Yes. Better, yes. Absolutely. Better the better programs in division one are by far better than any division three team. That's not my point. My yeah. point is don't get caught up in the label, make the choice for the right reasons. And then just going back, Stefan, with European baseball, I just want to kind of kind of chat a little bit about kind of your thoughts. Like, where do you kind of see European baseball kind of moving forward? Do you see more Europeans making the bigs? You know, I'm not in European baseball on a day-to-day basis enough to make a really informed statement about that. Gotcha. It's clear it's clear that there's been a little more um, movement from European players into the U.S. minor league system. Max Kepler is a great example of a guy from Germany who's made it over here. Yes. But, I, and, you know, and, and um, there are professional, U.S. professional scouting presences within the European baseball system, including my old world baseball partner, Tom Gillespie with the Pirates. But um, I haven't seen a really momentous change in the number of European players coming over into the U.S. ranks and succeeding over the last 10 or 15 years. I think it's a very gradual change. And I guess my biggest problem, Stefan, is I feel like they're signing the European players too young and not, it's almost like kind of maybe at a disadvantage for them, you know, like a guy like Simon Goering, right? I mean, I feel like he's a guy, you know, he signed when he was, what, 17 and got released when he was 19, but being from Germany really didn't 
probably play as much baseball as he probably needed to develop, right? I feel like he's a guy, if he signed at 20, 22, 23, it could be a different story. Yeah, he's a great example of that, by the way, because he was, this is how old I am, but he was, he was, play, he was basically a rookie in one of his first couple of years in the Bundesliga when I was over there with Tubingen. And at the time, I thought he was a very good player, and he obviously has turned out to be maybe Germany's best international player ever, at least arguably. Yes. I have enormous respect for him, and I completely agree with what you said. He he had his opportunity too soon, and it was too short. Um, but that I don't know how you get around that. That's the problem with the, with Major League Baseball's international signing system, where you know an international kid can sign, I believe, at sixteen, and a U.S. kid can't sign until at least they finished high school. So I, I don't know the, I don't know the solution to that problem, Jeff, but I agree. It's a problem. Yeah. Even when I took our UFC team to the Dominican, we played some of their Academy programs and there was a 19 year old that threw against us and he was like 90, 92 and legit pitcher. But I mean, he was 19 and in the Dominican, that's basically old news, but in reality, that guy should have been playing Juco at least somewhere. So it's definitely something Happens all over the place, I guess. Yep. Yep. And I guess, Stefan, it's just time for our ninth inning call to the bullpen. So it's just going to be some random questions just to learn a little bit more about you. Okay. I'll do my best. <laughs> Favorite NHL team? Canadians. <laughs> yes. Montreal? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, they were really good when I was little. And I think I was front runner at like age five. And, and I've just stuck with them. I appreciate that. <laughs> Favorite travel destination? Uh, well, Europe generally, um, and probably Southern Germany and Tübingen in, in specific. And it's 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 beautiful, but it's also because of all the connections over there. All-time favorite professional wrestler? Uh, this is going to be... Just a name, because I can't say I've ever been a huge wrestling fan, but I love Andre Giant. Maybe it's the Princess Bride thing. <laughs> Favorite baseball movie of all time? All right. I'm going to go with Bull Durham, but there's, there's a few that I could, pull, I could go for on that one. <laughs> and Stefan, if you could golf or have dinner with any three people, dead or alive, who would you like to go with? Golf or dinner, huh? Not golf and dinner. It could be either or. Oh man. Okay. Um, <laughs> oof. Jeez. I. I mean. I feel like there, there's a couple of different ways I could go with this one, Jeff. And and um, I can either sound like I'm a poser, or I'm really, <laughs> or I'm really superficial. So I'm like afraid to answer this question. Um. Uh. Okay. I'll. I'll try to. I'll try to spread them around a little bit. How about um, Martin Luther King Jr., um, Ron Guidry, my favorite pitcher growing up, the Raging Cajun. Yes. This will make for an interesting conversation, by the way, with this <laughs> with variety of humans involved. And, um, and my dad. How about that? Yeah. Uh, golf or dinner, Stefan? With that group, um, yep. I'm going to say dinner. With the, the Raging Cajun are probably a great golfer. Most major league pitchers played a lot of golf, but, <laughs> but I don't think my dad ever picked up a pair of clubs. So, any particular place? Um, for for our dinner, 
Yes. Sam's Bar and Grill in Porchester, New York. <laughs> yeah, that'd work. <laughs> yeah. And Stefan, if you could be an Olympian in any sport, winter or summer, what sport would you like to try? Uh, well, my daughter, my, my twin daughters are really good rowers, and they're going to go to the University of Virginia next year and row. So rowing's kind of on my mind. Um, but it also, I know how difficult it is and how much pain a rower suffers when they're racing. So while I was tempted to go with rowing, I'm going to say baseball and keep it simple. And lastly, Stefan, just going to test your memory a little bit here on the 1998 Johnstown team that you managed. Do you remember the name of the right-handed pitcher that ended up pitching for Italy in the 2000 Olympics? I didn't even know that happened, um, but I'm <laughs> guessing. I'm guessing it was. Uh, his name is going to come back to me. Was it Jason? Um, he so we had a pitcher that year who we sold, and I mean sold to not traded to the Yankees in the middle of the season, and he's the guy that I would expect it to be, but I didn't know that it happened. So what was his name? Uh, Mark Serbone. Nope. Not the name I was thinking of. No. no. Was you sure he was on the 98 Johnny's? Uh, I guess when I looked it up, I, I yeah, I, I believe so. Okay. All right. Well now I feel, now I feel stupid. <laughs> now I feel stupid, but, um, yeah, that's cool that he got to do that. I didn't realize that. Were you, were you thinking, was, uh, do you know that, was that that Jason Simon Tachi or whatever his last name that, is? Yeah, that name I remember, but he definitely didn't play for us. Um, gotcha. Yeah, so I just pulled up, because this is the wonders of the internet. I just pulled <laughs> up our roster from 98. I don't see a Mark Serbone on the roster, so maybe I'm not as stupid as I thought I was. Oh, do I have the wrong year? Maybe. That might maybe. make it, that might make the difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good, good. Because, you know, um, the guy's name I was thinking of was Jason Mathis, by the way. Okay. But okay. When, when you said Mark Serbone, I was like, uh, I might be going senile because <laughs> I don't think he was on our team that summer. Gotcha. But he was. He is on the roster. He is on the roster. So I guess I am going senile. He, pitched, I- 18, he pitched 18 innings for us that summer. <laughs> Well, like we talked about, that's kind of that indie ball revolving door too, though. Like just trying to remember even some of the teammates that I played with. Like, I mean, it happens so quick, right? They're only there for two weeks. So yeah, it happens. Yes. No, thank, thanks for thanks for covering for me, Jeff. I feel better now. <laughs> thanks for coming on, Stefan. Is there any shout outs before we sign off? Uh, well, shout out to you again for, for having me on and, and for the great run you had with the Great Britain team and, and that. Um, iconic appearance against Sweden. And, um, you know, I, I, I could shout out a lot of people because there's so many people that I've, that I've spent time with in baseball that I have the utmost respect and affection for, but I'll just give my, my partner, Tom Gillespie, my old world baseball partner, Tom Gillespie, another shout out because he's still heavily involved in baseball and, um, runs a, he's not only doing it for his own sake, but he's running a baseball, not for profit bringing baseball around the world to underserved communities as well. It's called playglobal.org. Yeah, no, it's definitely like just even to see some of the countries that he's run camps and clinics at. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. If you've never had him on, he'd be an interesting guest because he he's, he's the only guy you'll have had who's, 
who's been in Uganda and the Ukraine for baseball, I'm sure. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Thanks, Stefan. Jeff, great talking to you, buddy. She said, Deacon from a land down under Where women glow and man thunder Can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? Yeah You better run, you better take cover Yeah You better run, you better take cover